please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And uh, let, let's stand for the reading of, of God's word and uh, hear him speak to us. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this. Now the Spirit <clears throat> expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, we, we want this church, we want Cornerstone Church to be a, a, a buttress and, and pillar of the truth. And so we ask together this morning that in both congregations, truth would hold sway. Will you guard me and guard my friends from error and, and guard us from the evil one who wants to distract us and who wants to deceive us so that, so that truth is not received. So will you jerk back Satan's leash now? He's, he's your devil. He's on your leash. So please just jerk it back and send your spirit in power to be our, our helper that we would see and we would understand your truth and so that we would behave as we ought in the household of God. We ask this for the sake of our mission together, for the sake of our everlasting, ever-increasing joy, and for the sake of your eternal honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. Well, let's just take a moment, because we have quite a text before us this morning, but I, I think we need, we need to get our minds wrapped around the context and for, for our text and, and the purpose, overarching purpose of this letter of First Timothy. By, by context, I mean the situation that occasioned the letter. Um, Paul is writing to Timothy, his young pastoral protege, to address a situation in the church where Timothy is stationed. Um, and, and we have the situation stated plainly for us in chapter 1, verse 3. Pa Paul writes this to Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Paul is writing to counter false teachers who have crept into the church. He, he wants to impart strength to Timothy in order um, to keep him on task, his pastoral duty to, to fight false doctrine. Now, it, it, it's really important, and I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, to, to get our doctrine, our theology correct. If we don't, the implications are huge. 
Um, the, the opposite of, of sound or um, the, the Greek word means healthy doctrine or theology, what God teaches, what he reveals to us in his book, the opposite of that is unsound or, or false, sick doctrine that infects and eventually kills. To, to think wrongly about God and his ways and his world and his salvation has consequences. And the consequences are eternal, which gets to the purpose of this letter. So we get the occasion of the letter in that one verse, chapter 1, verse 3. And we get the purpose of the letter in two verses that are in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This really is the, the thesis statement of 1 Timothy. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that, there's a purpose clause, here's the purpose. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, Paul's purpose in writing is so that we would know how to act in his church, how to behave in God's family, right? This church, the church, but this church, Cross of Grace Church in Chaska, Minnesota, just as much as the church in Ephesus a couple thousand years ago is an earthly outpost of a heavenly kingdom, right? We, we, we are the church of the living God. We are the place where the people, where God dwells, where, where he reigns. Now, someday, the kingdom of God will be here in fullness because Jesus will come back to earth and God's rule and reign will be seen in all its perfect glory. But while we wait for that day, uh, this church is intended by God to be a picture of what that future rule will look like. God desires that the world out there would be able to look at the church in here and see what his kingdom, what his reign and rule looks like. And I don't have to tell you, that's huge. We are called as local churches to be many models of the kingdom that display to the world the glory of God's rule in all our relationships, in our families, in our worship, in all of life. And this letter is about how we do that. So in a sense, it's a manual for church life. And Paul tells us where this proper behavior in the church comes from. He refers to the church as the pillar and buttress of truth. So the church is meant to support, like, like a buttress. Um, you, you actually see buttresses in the old cathedrals um, with those flying buttresses on the outside made of stone, wood, uh, brick, um, and to uphold the truth, like a pillar, um, which is also referred to. The, the, the truth is referred to in this letter as Sound doctrine, like I said, that means healthy doctrine. Paul sometimes calls it the faith. Um, other times he calls it 
the teaching or the gospel, or sometimes he calls it the deposit. I'm calling it theology in my title for alliteration's sake, right? But um, I love that, that when Paul refers to it as the teaching, it's always singular, never plural, right? The, the truth that the church supports and upholds is not... It's not a, a uh, just a, a collection of of a whole bunch of multiple random teachings. It's not what it is. It's it's a body of truth, right? It's God's re- revelation uh, of Himself, it, it, and and so this right here is the source and the standard of everything. Um, it's so important to keep that in mind about the church. Here's why. We live our lives beyond these walls where we are daily immersed in worldviews that deny Christ and deny God's claim on us. Worldviews that ignore or trivialize the eternal. So what happens is um, the, the pressure we feel is a pressure to conform, to accommodate, to make room for those worldviews so that they begin to shape us. And, and our culture is applying that pressure on us with, with a force and a, a velocity that has never been greater in the 27 years I've been in ministry. And churches all over are caving to the pressure. Entire denominations, networks are caving by embracing the least common denominator of doctrine. So the evangelical tent just keeps getting bigger and bigger, but when Buttresses and pillars give way to poles and canvas and string. The shifting winds of, of doctrine are going to blow the tent down. Now, I don't think any of you long-term, uh, long-time members of uh, Cross of Grace would still be here if, if you didn't want to affirm and embrace and hold fast and cherish and esteem and submit to the authoritative apostolic and prophetic instruction, the, the teaching contained in God's Word. And, and guess, I hope you'll come back, because I know this church, I know we're pastors, and you're in a, a, a great place. And the, the only way, the only way we'll make it, humanly speaking, to the finish line, still Christian, and, and the only way this church... Cross of Grace Church will live on beyond us and, and continue its Christ-exalting, fruit-bearing, joy-producing ministry is if we stay tethered to the teaching, to God's truth. Right? The, the true sound doctrine, faithful teaching, is where we gain our identity. Right? It's what guarantees our unity. 
It's what protects us. It's what feeds our soul. It's what fuels our worship. It's what keeps us on mission. It's what preserves the gospel we love. False doctrine in the church and and the unholy culture out there are are like, remember the orcs and the Urukai um, with their battering ram on, on the door to Helm's Deep in the two towers? Sound doctrine is the keep in the castle, the the most fortified portion of the church. It's where we go and where we remain in order to be safe. The the church is, is the support of the truth, and the church holds up the truth like a pillar on a pillar for the world to see. And guarding the truth from error is absolutely critical. Because what we believe, I say this all the time at Cornerstone, and I'm going to go on saying it for as long as my season behind the pulpit um, uh, remains until it ends. The, what we believe influences, it shapes the way we live. What we believe influences how we live. So if we get the truth wrong we get our lives wrong. Right? We, we will only behave the way we ought in the church if we believe what's true about God, about his world, about his ways, about his works. And so we have to cling to what's true and so live as we ought to in order to be the visible kingdom outpost that God wants his church to be. Longer introduction, but I think it's safe to say our texts are in context now. So let's look at our text, and and here's how we're going to walk through um, these verses. We're going to take it in three sections with these headings. First, we'll look at the heresy. That's verses 1 through 3. That's what the false teachers, that's what they were teaching. Um, Then we'll look at the orthodoxy. That is, we'll consider what's true. That's contained in verse 4. And then we'll ask the question, in light of that truth, how should we then live? How ought we behave? And that's verse 5. So first, the heresy. Let me read verses 1 through 3 again. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerities of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So here's a dose of reality. The Holy Spirit has made it clear, Paul says, that some will make shipwreck of the faith. Some in the church will fall away from the truth and so fall away from Christ. They'll go out from us proving that they were never part of us. 1 John 2, 19. Some will swallow, hook, line, and sinker, deceitful, and downright demonic doctrines. Jesus said the same thing, Matthew 24, 11. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. 
In the book of Acts, chapter 20, when, when the Apostle Paul was leaving the church in Ephesus, the, the, the very church where Timothy is, when he writes the letter we're considering, um, he's saying goodbye to the elders there, and he warns them prophetically in verse 29 that fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, the church. And now, as he writes Timothy, that's happening. False teachers are teaching lies instead of the truth in the church. And people are falling away. That's what I call, that's why I called this heresy, not just bad theology. And none of us has perfect theology. We, we try, we do the best we can, but we all see through the mirror dimly. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Yet we can still connect. We can still have fellowship with God. But there is some teaching, and we're going to see an example of it in just a moment, that, that's so bad, it's so misguided that it actually cuts a person off from God. That's heresy. And that's what the Holy Spirit warned was coming and is now here, which is why Paul is writing, and it's still here today, right? I mean, it just looks and sounds different. This is, this is serious stuff. We get a glimpse in verse 1 of the ultimate source of this kind of heresy. Some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So some, some teaching is not only dangerous, it's diabolical. The, the devil is behind it. The, the devil is not only a tempter who entices people to sin, he's also a deceiver who entices people into error. Right? So our spiritual warfare is it's real. We still wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil Ephesians 6.12. That, that's why when Jesus taught us how to pray, right, he instructed us to pray every day for deliverance from the evil one. Matthew 6.13. The devil's a liar. He's a schemer. He's a counterfeiter. That's how the Bible describes him. And Paul wants us to be alert to his role in sabotaging the church with heresy so that we can stand against him and his minions. That's the ultimate source of this heresy. But there's, there's a more immediate source, a human source, the false teachers. Paul says, verse 2, that the demonic doctrine goes through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, you know what the conscience is, right? It's, it's that, that part of us that warns and, and convicts, it's, it's the part of our, our inner being that acts as judge and arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. And a Christian conscience is fed by the word of God. And so we obey our conscience when it speaks to us. When we act against it, we feel appropriate conviction. And so we run to God for forgiveness in Christ. But, but Paul says that the conscience of, of the false teacher is seared. Right? It's, it's brutally burned so that it's desensitized and no longer functioning properly. 
And that's a dangerous, really a deadly condition because when, when a conscience is seared, that person drifts into sin unhindered, right? They feel no conviction about being an insincere liar. They become open to the doctrine of, of demons. After that, the only thing left is apostasy, right? Abandoning the faith. And that, that's, that's what happened with these false teachers. Morals slipped when doctrines shifted. And, and the, the drift led them to dangerous shoals where unseen rocks just dashed their doctrine and their life to pieces. See, not only is it true that what we believe affects the way we live, but the way we live can also affect what we believe. So that a seared conscience can lead to heresy. So there's some out there who feel same-sex attraction, and pretty soon their doctrine of sexuality is corrupt. That happens. Now, let's look at the heresy itself. Verse 3, again. Who forbid marriage? This is what these false teachers were doing. Forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not the heresy that I'd expect. But the devil is crafty. Right? We'd expect, at least I would, a teaching that allows what God forbids. That, that's where we're living today. But this is a teaching that forbids what God allows. Right? Marriage and food represent the, the two most basic appetites of the human body. Sexual fulfillment and hunger. Now, both, both can be abused. We, we know that. Um, but, but that would be an obvious heresy, Right? to make idols of sex and, and food. But, but what was being taught was that these were in and of themselves unclean appetites. And so they should be avoided in order to gain favor with God. And that, that error can just be traced in church history. It's called asceticism. It's the, it's the practice of severe self-discipline and abstaining from certain pleasures for spiritual reasons. In Ephesus, the, the forbidding of marriage and, and the renunciation of certain foods, um, a lot of Bible scholars ha have reasons for, um, for coming to the conclusion it's meat in this case, um, what was being taught as essential to a person's right standing with God. Now, this kind of teaching caught on, like I said, in the early church. Um, serious Christians retreated from society, retreated from the home, retreated from the marriage bed, from the workaday world to live in caves and deserts and communes. A good Christian um, became defined as those who renounce normal human life. They failed to locate our problem in our sinfulness and instead located it in our humanness. So celibacy became an order, a higher order, higher class in the church. Goodness was often measured in misery. Now, God calls some to be single, right? The Apostle Paul was, 
Jesus was. And he calls us to self-control with food and seasons of fasting from it. The Apostle Paul did those. Um, But this is different. This is a self-denial and abstention. Um, It's put forward by false teachers as a way, as the way it must be in order to earn that favorable status with God, which is why I think this heresy was endorsed. I mean, why, why else would false teachers forbid such pleasures and others in the church buy into the teaching and the practice, right? It, it was a way to assuage a seared conscience, the, 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 the creation of a conscience that you can quiet by fleshly self-denial allows one to ignore those pesky inner demands of the Holy Spirit. Right? And it, it creates a way to acquire a form of righteousness, man-made though it is, we can hide, right? We, we can hide inner sinfulness with outward abstentions. And so we see the reason this is so important to Paul. It's because it cuts to the very heart of the gospel. We cannot gain a right standing with God by what we do or by what we don't do. There's only one way to gain a right standing with God. We, we get that right standing not by creating a false holiness, but by admitting our unholiness and banking all our confidence on the Holy One who entered into His creation, took on flesh, did everything God requires and not a thing He forbids, and then died to pay the penalty for every one of His people who fail to do what God requires every single day. And then was raised in victory, absolute victory over sin. When we trust that gospel, you know what happens? Jesus becomes our husband. And we, the church, become his bride. No forbidden marriage with Jesus. right? And he becomes our bread of life, our food, best food there is, and the only food that truly satisfies. And he calls us to glut our appetites on him. That's how this false teaching undercuts the doctrine of redemption. But it also undercuts the doctrine of creation. That's what Paul makes clear in verse 4. So moving to the next heading now, from the heresy to the orthodoxy, or the truth, the sound doctrine. Here's verse 4. For everything created by God is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Simple, isn't it? What God created is good. How can we forbid marriage when God is the one who instituted it? How how can we command abstention from certain foods when God created them all to be received with thanksgiving and not rejected? You see, the the problem with with this heresy is is not just that it promotes self-righteousness, The problem is that it also rejects God's good gifts, God's goodness to us. God is so good to us, right? We sang about it. He's so generous. 
He's so kind. It's just lavish. I mean, just think of God's kindness to us in terms of what the false teachers were despising. God could have created the world in such a way that a husband and a wife consummate their marriage with a handshake. He could have done that. Just a handshake. That's it. Or God could have created us so that we, we eat just once a month, and what we eat is an odorless, tasteless goo that has all the nutrients we need to get us through the holidays and just a handful. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. He created turkey and all the ingredients of my wife's sausage stuffing and mashed potatoes and gravy and cranberries and green bean casserole and bread and corn and pumpkin pie, right? All the things we enjoyed on Thursday and are still enjoying as leftovers today, right? And, and the fact that he did not create a pleasureless, tasteless, odorless, colorless world is significant. To deny the goodness of God's creation is to deny God's own goodness. To not feast on occasion. And to not really enjoy the feast is insulting to God and destructive to the soul. Right? God created the world and he declared it very good. And he filled the world with delights to be received and not rejected. That's orthodoxy. That's truth. So it was okay to feast last Thursday. It's going to be okay to feast during this holiday season. Let's just make sure we do it worshipfully, which leads to the final heading, the life. Heresy, the orthodoxy, the life, which we're just asking the question, remember, how then should we live? What we believe determines how we behave. And, and Paul is writing to adjust our belief so that we know how to behave in the household of God. That, that's one of Paul's main points in the letter, like we said at the beginning. So how ought we behave in light of this glorious truth of God's goodness expressed in his delight-filled creation? Well, let's read verse 4 and add verse 5 this time for the answer. For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, th this, is, this is really important. I, I, my guess is we probably don't have a lot of aesthetics, aesthetics in this room. I, I doubt there are, are um, a lot of us, if any of us, who out and out reject the, the delights of God's created world. I doubt that any of us skipped um, Thursday's Thanksgiving feast of food and family and friends and fellowship and, and football for spiritual reasons. But we have to ask, did we respond to it all properly? What is the proper response? Let me give it to you straight from verse 5, and then we'll unpack the thoughts some more. We respond properly to the delightful experience of God's goodness in creation by doing two things, according to verse 5. First, we accept God's verdict that his creation is very good. That's more than likely 
what the Word of God is referring to in verse 5? It's God's pronouncement from Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. That's the first thing. Second thing is we thank Him for it personally. That's what prayer is a reference to in verse 5. It's an expression of thanksgiving that the apostle has already mentioned in verses 3 and 4. And Paul says that when we receive God's good gifts this way, they're not just okay, they're made holy. They're consecrated. A meal becomes a sacred event. A married couple's intimacy is a sacred act. Your cup of coffee and the sunrise and your friendships and those two stupid faithful dogs who will greet me like I've been gone a month when I get home are all sacred. They're sacred. It's a sin to not receive God's good gifts this way because we glorify Him in the enjoyment of them. 1 Corinthians 10.31, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Here it is. So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Sin is not just those harmful things we do. Sin is leaving God out of our enjoyment of things. Right? It's sinful to not recognize the giver behind every good gift. So almost every time I say grace before a meal, I ask that the Lord would help me eat and drink to His glory. That is, to, to receive the food as an expression of His goodness, and so with a grateful heart that acknowledges Him as the giver of food that tastes good, and then I enjoy it. Remember what we said, it didn't have to taste good. And the fact that it does is an, exp- it's an expression of his lavish love and grace. But it's not just about food, is it? It's about every good gift from God. G.K. G. Chesterton, great poet, journalist, novelist, art critic, philosopher, historian, Christian apologist from the, the early 20th century, wrote a poem in one of his notebooks that was found and then published after he died. Here it is. You say grace before meals. All right. But I say grace before the play and the opera. And grace before the concert and pantomime. And grace before I open a book. And grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing. And grace before I dip the pen in the ink. See, to to, to believe and know the truth of the gospel, like verse 3 of our text says, is to be truly alive. Right? And, and to be truly alive is to see things we once did not see. Right? Before we knew and believed the truth, we worshipped creation and thought it was God. Now we know that God is the creator and we can see everything as a reflection of Him. We, we don't worship the reflection any longer. We worship the source of all truth and beauty and delight. Even man-made beauty, we now realize, is a reflection of God's image in us. It's his, his DNA that's built into us so that we have an imagination and creative expression. 
We enjoy the song. You enjoy songs? We enjoy the song because we love the one who sang the whole creation into existence and who sings over us with loud rejoicing, Zephaniah 3.17. We enjoy the story, the novel, the, the non-fiction history, the, 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 the movie, because we love the storyteller who wrote every story, including the story of all stories. We enjoy the moon because we love the sun. We enjoy it as a reflection of the one who created it all and declared it all good. To not live like this, to not, to not do this, is to live like an atheist. Isn't that true? I live too much of my life like an atheist. I mean, you, you can be a Christian and hike the North Shore, see the sunset, listen to good music, watch a great film, eat leftover turkey, gaze at the stars, and really enjoy those things, but miss out on the ultimate purpose in them by missing God's purpose for them. We experience full delight in God's good gifts when we respond to them by giving God honor through gratitude. Giving God thanks honors Him as the generous giver. It honors that generosity. When we experience God's goodness and His gifts, we turn that experience into worship by thanking God for it. And when we do that, we're actually delighting in the gift more fully. To simply enjoy God's gifts for their own sake without any thought of God is to miss the deepest enjoyment of them. Right? We're missing the very purpose that God gave them, which is to lead us to Him. Right? The gratitude takes us to Him. Gratitude swims back upstream, back up the stream of creation to the source to the source of all delights, and says, thank you. How many good gifts do we receive and not follow them back to God with gratitude? I mean, just, just think of the beauties, pleasures we've already experienced today. Warm shower, right? the smell of brewing coffee, the child's warm good morning hug, the smiling face of a friend. What did we do with them? Where did our thoughts take us? Did we follow them back to the giver of all those good gifts with honor and gratitude? That's how God intends for us to live, right? That, that's the theology of thanksgiving. To live any other way is to reject God's good gift, which is an insult to the creator of all things. And it's, Paul says, to depart from the faith. But to receive them with thanksgiving is to consecrate them and to enjoy them more fully. And so it's to honor God and glorify Him, who, like Paul tells us later in Timothy, chapter 6, verse 17, richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And we know, don't we, that there's no greater gift than the Father's gift of Jesus and salvation through Him. Romans 8, 32 he who did not spare his son, 
but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has already given us the greatest gift in Christ. So now, all other gifts are meant to point us to him. Let's pray. Well, Father, will you, will you open our, our eyes to see, like John Calvin said, the spark of your glory in every atom of the universe. I want to see it all as a reflection of you and give you the, the honor and the thanks and the worship you deserve for your good gifts. Thank you for such lavish grace. Don't let us miss it. Thank you that we are, we are now alive to the beauty of Christ in the gospel. We're, we're awake to beauty everywhere because of that. So may we receive it and never reject it. For our joy and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.